Hi, welcome to the new voting project. My name is Kanal, your host. Um, today we're here with uh, Steve Pittman, um, who's a member of the NAMI Board of Directors. Um, we're also president of NAMI Orange County um, Board of Directors. Um, you are also a member of MindOC, um, the Proxy Parent Foundation Boards of Directors. And in 2019, you were recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award from NAMI California. Congratulations, very belated, <laughs> congratulations. Um, thank you for being with me here today. I know everybody's been busy during COVID and the pandemic, so I hope it's been well on your side. Uh, but yeah, let's dive in. So for our first question, um, kind of really basic, detail the work you've done with NAMI as an organization, um, you know, what got you into mental health, um, rehabilitation, you know, kind of what, what's, what's your story, essentially? In a quick response. Yes. Um, I have a brother, had a brother mm -hmm. that lived with schizoaffective disorder. I see. Was probably uh, 51, 50, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 times, oh. um, which usually meant that the CAT team had come 600 times because my experience, at least with the CAT team, was that, that unless somebody were really, 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 really in desperately bad shape, there wasn't much they could do. Um, so it was always a question of waiting until he got bad enough shape and then to try to do something to help him. At least that's the way I perceived it. And after one of those many 5150s, I got a call from someone about a class I'd signed up to take. And I thought, Lord, the last thing on earth I need is a class. And so she sounded pleasant enough. So I'm thinking, well, you know, what's one night out of the year? You know, even if it's bad, you know, it's a couple of hours. And then I realized she's telling me the class is going to last 12 weeks, two and a half hours a week. And so I said to her, I said, you know, Sue, you sound like a very nice lady, but I'm not a big believer in this kind of thing. So I'll give you one class, but you may not ever see me again. So that one class was the first class of family to family, NAMI. And in 30 minutes at the most, I realized that for the first time in my life, I could talk about my brother's mental illness without being judged for it or shamed or stigmatized. And that everyone in the room knew had a pretty good feel for what I'd been going through and frankly, I for them. So I went home and I have a granddaughter who at that time had been struggling with bipolar disorder. And I said, Melissa, I said, you've got to take this class. And she said, Papa, she said, I don't know if I can take that class. I've got bipolar disorder. So I said, well, let me call the NAMI Orange County office and see what they say. So I called and spoke with the lady and she said, uh, if she, if my granddaughter has a, has a family member with the diagnosable mental illness, she's welcome to come into the class. And I said, but Donna, she has bipolar disorder. And she said, Steve, let me slow this down and explain it again. If she has a family member with a diagnosable mental illness, she's welcome to take the class. In other words, we don't care whether or not she has a mental illness. I mean, we care but that's not a criteria for getting in or not getting into the class. The criteria is you have to have a family member with a diagnosable mental illness. So at any rate, she and I ended up taking the class. 
we got so much out of it, we took it again. And I called to see if we could sign up to take it again. And the lady said, you know, we teach the class once, but that's it. You know, after that, you know, you can attend a support group, but normally we don't allow people to take the class twice. And I said to her, I said, Donna, Melissa and I are both very slow learners. We really feel like we need to take the class again. Right. So we did. And right after having taken it twice, mm -hmm. we signed up to take the training to teach the class and ended up teaching the class eight or nine times together, um, which was also very helpful for both for she, my granddaughter, and for me. Um, but that was my introduction to NAMI, and that was a little over 15 years ago. Wow. It's a good story. <laughs> and it's all true. Yeah, that's the best part. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, could you kind of touch on your role, your current role at NAMI? Um, and, and, you know, what you do as, as a board of directors member on both Orange County and national? Well, it, the national organization, as you may know, has a, a very strong staff. We have a CEO. I don't know how many employees there are nationally, maybe 50. Um, I could be wrong on that, but it's a very, very, very strong staff. So at the national level, we have a tendency to focus on policy issues. Um, in smaller affiliates and in smaller NAMI organizations where there are no employees, where it's all volunteer, frequently the board gets involved in operational issues. At the national level, that doesn't happen. Um, we set policy and, and the staff is the one that carries out the policy. Uh, and in Orange County, that's pretty much the way it works as well. We have in Orange County about 100 employees maybe 60 full-time equivalents. And so it allows the board to fulfill the role of policy making as opposed to operations. Um, in small affiliates where you have board members who are also volunteers in operating, those distinctions get blurred fairly quickly. Uh, so in other words, you'll have a board member answering the phone. In Orange County, we don't do that. We have staff that answer the phone and send out mail and go through mail and make deposits and and all of all of those operational details so my role at the national level has been in the arena of policy i was the chair of the governance committee for two years i was the president of the organization for two years um, most recently i've been on the quality assurance committee which is a committee that's been trying to address how we collect metrics on what we've been doing, particularly as it relates to signature programs, um, because currently we don't have any any mechanism that adequately harvests the numbers of how many people we reach, how many classes we teach, how many presentations we give. Um, the information sometimes is turned into the national organization and frequently is not. We don't really know what what percentage are turned in and what are not. So we don't have any good hard numbers, which which I think we need in order to, to speak about our impact. Um, and so I've been working on that as of late. Um, huh? that, that should give you an idea. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. Uh, it is a lot of work. At the national level, when you run for the board, they say you should expect to spend 10 hours a week. My guess is it's far more than that. <laughs> yeah, I'd bet. <laughs> um, how important is mental health 
and how should people prioritize it? Well, I don't think you can have good physical health if you don't have good mental health. I, th I think the two things go together and I think more often than not, mental health is either completely ignored or any conversation about mental health is kind of uh, minimized um, as something that's kind of less than important. Um, but I think it's very important, you know, the idea of resiliency, of mindfulness, these are all things that one can talk about without ever being a clinician, a paid uh, clinician in the field. These are things families can talk about. Um, I visited a, a, a home in, in the Southern California area for high school kids that had attempted suicide. And it was very effective in dropping the recidivism rates. And it was not, what they were doing was not complicated. Uh, the first thing that I noticed when I went to this home, and I think the home that I was in might have had nine of these folks in it, um, nine patients. I'm not sure if they characterize them as patients, but nine, nine people that they were trying to, to, to work with. And the first thing that I noticed is there was not a computer screen anywhere. There wasn't a television set. Nobody had smartphones, no electronic equipment of any kind at all. And in every corner of every room that I was in, there was a stack of board games. And one of the ladies, as we were looking at all these board games, and as you might guess, you know, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of board games. She commented to me, she said, have you ever tried to play a board game and not talk to the person you were sitting next to? It's pretty tough. Uh, the meals were all prepared by the staff and by the patients. In other words, the food wasn't prepared and served. We all make the meals together. Then we all, this is a novel concept. We all sit down and eat them together, you know, as opposed to everybody going to their own room and eating by themselves. Right. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about, what I've talked about thus far. This is not complicated stuff. You don't have to have a graduate degree to sit down and eat a meal with someone. And lots of times I feel like and, and I suspect it's true throughout the state, uh, those simple um, interactions that we have as family members somehow have kind of fallen through the cracks. You know, everybody gets busy, so everybody's going a thousand different directions at the same time. And the people you love the most, your family, are the people who get the least of your attention rather than most of it. So this particular organization felt like that's one of the reasons for feeling hopeless. You know, you're not strongly connected with your peers or your family, either one. Um, at any rate, I, I, I think there's a lot that we can do in the area of mental health that has nothing to do with having a graduate degree from wherever. It has to do with connecting with other people and, uh, and of course, in, in the world of the pandemic, that's been an issue that's been exceedingly difficult. I, I certainly think Zoom is better than not interacting, but I don't think it's nearly as good as face-to-face -face interaction with people. Yeah, I think we're both in agreement there. I ha had a, uh, I'll tell you one more story and then, we'll, then I'll stop. So I had the experience of going through homeless uh, living facility here in Orange County. And one of the people that was in the group that I was touring with, I say tour group, there were four or five of us. 
one of the people that was in the group was a Monsignor in the Catholic Church. And he was about 90 years old, I guess. And a little bit slow physically, but cognitively everything was, he was right on track. And when you go into these places, half the people you interact with are people who've been homeless, who now for the first time and however have housing. And then the other half of the people are the people who work there, who at one point in the past were homeless, and now they're being employed by this nonprofit helping people out of homelessness. So in, to, to that extent, they all have kind of a common history. So to every man, to every person this, this priest saw, he walked over to them and he reached out, at, he reached out and he touched them. And he said to them, he said, I'm working my way to heaven. Will you help me? And of course, their eyes just got as big as saucers. Nobody had ever asked these people for anything in a hundred years. And here's this very dignified man asking them for help. So of course, every single one of them said, yes, yes. And then he said a very short prayer. I don't remember what he said. The prayer couldn't have lasted five or six seconds. And then he thanked them and they just kind of floated away from him. And I think it's because part of our humanity is to serve others. And I think for the mentally ill and I think for the homeless and I think for people with substance abuse disorders, I think we take that away. You know, what could this mentally ill person ever do for me? I think they can do a lot for you. You can learn what it's like to be mentally ill if you pay attention and listen. But all too often we take that, that serving element of humankind away from them. And I think that's a mistake. I think we should enlist all of these people to help in any way they can in everything they do, because I think it builds their mental health. Okay, I've talked long enough. Go right ahead. No, no, of course. Any any story is worth telling, I think. Um, I guess kind of switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the election, right? Um, what have you learned from the 2020 election? And what is NAMI advocating for at the federal level, state level, I guess some in some cases, local level? How does the process of voting, electing, um, and representation kind of intersect with what NAMI does? Well, one of the three elements of every NAMI, and we have local affiliates like NAMI Orange County, and we have state organizations like NAMI California, and we have the national NAMI, and each of their advocacy work is at a different level. So NAMI National is working with folks in Washington, DC. NAMI California is working with folks in Sacramento, and NAMI Orange County is working here on local issues. Um, and, and so I, and I think, and you're gonna find some NAMIs more than others are heavily engaged in that kind of advocacy work, some less so, but an awful lot of the laws that were written in the area of, of mental illness, like the LPS laws in California were written 52 years ago and it's time, I think, that we kind of reviewed those things to see if we could make them more effective. Um, and, and so far that has not been done. 
but I think the conversation is beginning so that it will be done. Right. In, in, in terms of voting and the most recent elections, this is not normally a question that I get asked, but I think throughout the process, we have stopped listening to one another. And I think every good solution starts with listening. And listening doesn't mean waiting patiently for your turn to speak. It means actually hearing what somebody is saying. And it seems like all too often the responses come too quick and too canned, if, if you will, as opposed to really hearing what the other person is saying. And I think from my standpoint, that's our very first responsibility is to hear, to actually listen. And I think that's, that's where we have gone astray politically. You know, we get to the point that we're very good at sharing our opinions about what should be done, but we haven't really listened always before we start to speak. And I think that's where it's got to start. Right. Yeah. I think I concur with that. Um, you know, you know, that famous phrase, doctor, do you concur? I concur. Um, but yeah, on the same, on the same tangent, is voting important? You know, this is, this is an issue we've been dealing with, you could ask, since the birth of the country, 60 years ago during the civil rights movement, even now, how important is voting? Should youth, you know, um, folks my age be allowed to vote? Why are voting rights the most critical tool, um, you know, we have as citizens? Well, you don't have to look too far and realize that it's only been in the 20th century that everyone even had a right to vote. Uh, women didn't get the vote until, was it 1918? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's hard to believe, hard for me to believe that there was a time when a woman couldn't vote. And obviously, I say obviously, it's like maybe it's not obvious, but until the mid 20th century, black folks couldn't vote. And there were all sorts of um, requirements that a, a black person had to pass even once they were allowed to vote. There were all sorts of things they had to do before they could actually cast a vote. For instance, they had to prove that they could read and write. Right, literacy. That, that's ridiculous. I mean, I would, I would like everybody to read and write, don't get me wrong. I think that's a great thing. But as a requirement to vote, ridiculous. And in some jurisdictions where those kind of laws were in place, the reading and writing was on things that you and I would stumble with. And here they're giving somebody who's been denied an education, giving things that you and I wouldn't understand. I mean, there's only one reason to do that and that's, that's to deny that person their right to vote. I think all of that is abhorrent. It's absolutely disgusting. And uh, in the United States, we did it well into the 20th century. I think it's terrible. And unfortunately, and I, and I grew up at a time when the lament was, it's so sad, only 42% or 35% or 49% of the registered voters even cast a vote. So the conversation was always, what can we do to get 
more people to vote. I mean, this is one of the most important things in a democracy, and we can't even get people to come to the polls to vote. And so gradually over the last maybe 30 years, we've made it easier and easier and easier for people to vote, which in my mind is a good thing. And now we're writing all of these requirements, making it more and more difficult to vote, particularly when those requirements are laid on the table in response to a problem that wasn't. You know, the, the whole issue of fraud in the elections, you know, I don't know how many different recounts have been done in some states and they've never found any problem with fraudulent votes being cast. Now, they found people who fraudulently cast votes, let's be clear, but it's been an infinitesimal percentage of the whole, well within uh, appropriate levels. And so now we're gonna create a system that makes it hard, harder for people to vote. I think it's a huge mistake, huge mistake. Right, um, especially in states like Georgia, where they're actually actively passing voter suppression laws. Um, well, I wish I wish Georgia was the only state that had done it, but I think right now there are about thirteen states that have yeah. that are passing that kind of legislation. I think it's a huge mistake. You know, I again, I I grew up during Vietnam, and voting was always a huge issue particularly when you could be drafted and be sent to Vietnam and die and never have the right to vote. And that's one of the reasons why the voting laws were changed during the Vietnam War immediately after it, because people say, hey, listen, if he can die for his country or she, they can die for their country, they ought to have a right to vote, which I think is absolutely correct. Um, so now to, to move away from making it easy to vote in my mind is just wrongheaded. And, uh, and obviously I think it's moving in the wrong direction. Right, yeah. I do concur, doctor. Um, <laughs> in closing, um, what is something you would advise to my generation, Gen Z, you know, teenagers, juveniles, um, sometimes we are delinquents, but you know, it really depends on who you ask. I think I'm great. Uh, what? Well, they don't characterize adult behavior as being delinquent, but I can assure you there are just as many adults out there being behaving that way as there are kids. I'm, I'm, no, I see, I've seen it for, firsthand, trust me. Um, you know, how do we stay engaged, not only in our communities, um, you know, and talking about mental health, but we're also talking about our, our only voice, right? It's being dismissed. Um, you know, how do we talk about education and mental health education, elections, the simple act of being engaged. What is your advice to, to the next class of people coming up? Well, as is often the case, the youth are better educated than the adults. Not always, but generally that's true. Um, I, I think the first obligation is the one that I've already hit on and that's to listen. You know, you don't, I would not want someone to come across at 18 as a know-it-all to somebody who's 50 or 75 or 100. I would first want them to know, I would first, as, a, as a, an older adult, I would first want to know that their opinions were considered. That is, this, this wasn't just uh, a flash in the pan. This is something that this person had thought about 
and read about and had some information about. I would want to know that they were interested in my opinion. And then, as I've said already, I think it's my obligation to listen to them and their opinion. And frankly, I think it's my obligation to respect their opinion, even if I disagree with it. But I think as I think everything starts, almost everything starts with a conversation, which means I have to listen to you, seriously listen to you, and you have to listen to me. And I think that's the starting point for bridging gulfs in our opinions, for uh, finding uh, solutions to problems that confront us. And obviously there are many, um, but, but I honestly think that most youth are moving in that direction already. I don't think what I just said comes, comes as any blinding bolt of light, but I think that's the way you get a seat at the table. You know, so-and-so is really thoughtful. They really listen. We could use somebody like so-and-so on our board. Um, and, and I can't imagine, well, I suppose I can't imagine if I imagine hard enough, but I think most boards, most NAMI boards, on the NAMI board in Orange County would welcome a young person onto the board because we want to represent a diverse community and part of diversity is age. And I think youthful perspectives would help those of us that are older right. and vice versa. So I think nothing is to be lost and everything is to be gained by having a more diverse culture on our boards. And again, part of that is youth. Got it. And is that an invitation to invite me to the NAMI board? Because I willingly accept. Where are you? I'm in the Bay Area. <laughs> if, if you were in Orange County, I would invite you to next week. Yeah. It would happen. What about the national board? All you got to do is run. Oh, yes. So those, those board, it's a little easier to get onto a local board. And if I were trying to move in that direction, that's where I would start a local board because you kind of get a sense of the culture of NAMI. Um, but in order to run for the national board, you, you have to file papers, you know, your resume, you have to answer inventory saying, these are the strengths that I bring to the table. And I wouldn't be apologetic by saying, listen, I'm 17, I've never been on a board and I don't know how old you are, so I'm just speculating. I'm 17, I've never been on a board before, but I think I have an important point of view I think most local boards would welcome that. Yeah, Can't guarantee they all would, but I can guarantee you that ours would. And then you kind of learn how the system works and then you file your paperwork to run for the national board. You have to get um, a, a, an affiliate like NAMI Orange County or NAMI Tri-Cities to endorse you. In other words, yeah, he's a good guy. We want him to be on the national board. It's, it's that simple. And then there are papers that you have to file along the way. And then there are speeches that you have to give that are timed, you have five minutes. There's a rule against campaigning. So for instance, somebody that has lots of money can't come in and spend $100,000 campaigning to be on the national board. It's strictly forbidden. And that's the reason it's forbidden. It would, it would not be fair to somebody like you or frankly, to somebody like me who couldn't possibly spend $100,000 on it. So, then you run for the board and then the affiliates and the state organizations all cast their votes. It's all done electronically and the votes are counted and uh, the people with the most votes get seated. Uh, and then you're, you're fully 
engaged with the board and the board meets uh, now lately has been an exception because of the pandemic right. but we have four meetings a year in washington dc and your expenses are paid for those meetings uh, and i think your voice would be welcome i mean that sincerely yeah no we'll uh, we'll definitely see i gotta worry about college first but uh <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see um just for the but viewers there's, there's, i can tell you there's no rules at nami about age good yeah no for the viewers if anybody's interested in running for your local nami chapter um i guess that's the process so if you want to run for national there it is um and yeah uh where can people follow nami um say updated well it depends because remember we have a national organization just one it's an independent 501c3 we have 48 state organizations. They are all independent 501c3s. And then we have affiliates. And in California, I believe there's about 50 affiliates, uh, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less. And uh, so you would go to your local NAMI and go to the website. Some affiliates communicate with the people in their areas on a fairly regular basis. You're certainly uh, more than more than happy to join NAMI Orange County's website, and then you'd get all the information that we put out. If you join now, in order to join NAMI, there are three different levels of membership. I think the least expensive is ten dollars a year. You're not treated any differently if you come on for ten or if you come on for sixty. So if money's an issue, as with many people, it is. I wouldn't be embarrassed. No one will ever say, "Well, you're only a ten dollar member." You know, you don't get all of the benefits that somebody else gets. That's bullshit. Everybody gets exactly the same thing. And I would much rather have you as a member of NAMI than not. So if $10 works for you, you're welcome. And then as, as soon as you've done that, then you're gonna start getting emails and hard copies of certain publications that are published, have access to the website and all sorts of other things in the arena of mental health. Got it. Well, yeah. Uh, is there like a Twitter or? Uh... We're we are growing, growing, growing very, very, very rapidly. I'm sure that you understand all of that better than I do. But I know that one of the, the things that I saw in a report that was given two days ago was that we had something like 14,000 hits in two months where different national uh, media had mentioned and quoted NAMI. Uh, coal department store is in the process of making a major donation to NAMI. We're partnering with American Psychiatric Association Foundation okay. in the area of workplace mental health, which is an area that's been ignored for too long. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can kind of dip your toe in the water and get involved. Uh, and obviously, uh, if it's not apparent, I think as a result of your youth, you have something to bring to the table that many of us don't have. Right. Makes sense. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, your stories. Um, it's a unique perspective. I think you bring, especially at NAMI and to current political um, systems. Um, so yes, thank you so much for your service. Um, and I hope that you know, in, in the best interest of everybody, both youth and um, others work together on these issues. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, across the board. Um, but yes, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Uh, well, it's, it's not right on point, but the next time up in the Tri-Cities area, I'm gonna reach out to you. Of course, of course, anytime, glad, glad to meet. Um, 
And yeah, no, if, if uh, national ever needs a, a youth spokesperson, you know, I'm, I'm always available. You can send them my information. <laughs> well, you, you send me the podcast and I'll see that the appropriate people get it. How's that? That's a deal. That's a deal right there. Yes. I, uh, I will send that to you, but yes, thank you so much. And I, and I do hope you, and I, I wish you the very best of luck. With thank, you. Uh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.